So hello everyone, welcome back to TransAsia and the World. I'm Sam. And I'm Joy. And today we'll be speaking with Alex McCartney from Georgetown University. He is a PhD candidate in the Department of History. His dissertation focuses on anti-imperial movements and the Vietnam War. And specifically, he thinks a lot about the transnational anti-imperial violence during the 1960s and 1970s. So hello, Alex. Hi, Sam and Joy. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Recently, Alex gave us sort of some preliminary comments where he talked a lot about um, German and Japanese uh, organizations that turned to violence at, at, at different at similar points in time during the 1960s because of various problems they saw in sort of how um, the war in Vietnam was being conducted as part of what they saw as, um, how should I put this, a global American empire. Would that seem accurate, uh, Alex? Yeah, uh, certainly the the United States is the most uh, prominent example of global empire, but they certainly saw their own groups uh, as responding to their own national imperialisms as well. So by that, you mean there is a German, a Japanese iteration of that same kind of imperium as well? Indeed. Okay. So um, so today we're going to be sitting down and basically we're going to get to ask Alex uh, a whole bunch of questions built out of that. And you're going to get to hear... Um, different clippings from that, uh, from his earlier statements as we go along uh, in this episode. So I guess as an opening volley, um, <laughs> Alex, could you explain for our listeners what the distinction between terrorism and activism or violent activism, however you want to delineate those, like what exactly is the distinction? Uh, certainly, uh, the the question is an interesting one. G getting the idea of what terror is uh, is, is certainly important. Uh, naturally, it has a more specific definition uh, about the political use of violence against uh, certain targets, uh, often civilians, often representatives of the state, uh, in a, in a performative and and also uh, instrumentalized way. Uh, and in that way, you certainly could see what these groups did as a form of terrorism. Uh, but at the same time, the way that they would define their own actions uh, is a little bit more nuanced. Uh, the idea of violent action emerges through the late 1960s through the 1970s in, in a very specific context in which uh, the idea that there is terrorism in Vietnam and, and the third world more generally, uh, and also terrorism on the streets of Tokyo or West Berlin, and that the groups who are employing what they would refer to as direct action or counterviolence, uh, depending on who you asked, or resistance more specifically, as compared to protest, uh, was, was, was in direct opposition to the violence of the state. And in manifestos later uh, in their actions, uh, specifically the Red Army faction makes a very clear point that they say they don't target people who uh, shouldn't be targeted. And indeed, they, they even make the point that the state is shooting at them, the police is, are shooting at them, and uh, they're trying not to shoot back, uh, but they're being forced to. Dismissing it as terrorism, which is, is easy enough, and, and many did at the time and many do now, it often can be a sort of mask. Uh, it, it's, it's seen as nihilistic. It's seen as, as, as almost even apolitical. It's seen as madness. And there was uh, certainly a lot of that describing these Red Army factions at the time. And I think looking back at them now, it's very often difficult to understand why you would hijack a plane to, to try to end the war in Vietnam or end the uh, uh, occupation of, of what would be called Palestine. So these are, these, are, these are very specific goals with very thought over uh, methods uh, that, that need to be interrogated. So Alex, you are comparing 
two groups that both call themselves Red Army, but are from Japan mm. and Germany, correct? Yes. Uh, let's just make sure to uh, to be specific. Uh, West, West Germany. Germany. Okay. Yes. And what year about is their activity or what years are is their activity going on? The Groups themselves, uh, the the Japanese Red Army, uh, start as a faction of the student movement, uh, the larger student movement in Japan, uh, which uh, one of its major characteristics is faction. Um, and so, the, what becomes the Red Army faction, or Sekigun Sekigun Ha, emerges in late 1968 uh, and declares themselves independent of their student movement parent groups in about autumn 1969. Mm. They then factionalize uh, even further because again it's it's what the left does in, in the 1960s and 70s uh, um, and uh, they they split into about three or four different groups uh, depending on how you count them uh, the most active of those groups uh, doesn't declare themselves inactive until the early 2000s until the mid 2000s 2005 I believe is when Nihon Sekigun declares that they have uh, they've, they've stopped seeking active revolution so the other side is the West Germans the West Germans have a similar sort of debate among their student movement uh, about the use of violence they have a number of different groups that split off but they really start uh, from an incident in 1970, continue on through the, the early 1970s, and they similarly declare themselves uh, inactive in 1998. However, in 2016, 2015, a group of, of three Red Army faction members robbed an armored truck in northern Germany, <laughs> uh, and it was assumed that those were the, the same second generation Red Army faction members, who I, I assume are, are in their late 60s at this point. You know, it's unclear whether that was anti-imperial or whether they needed money. Uh, so it's, it's, it's unclear at this point if they're back. <laughs> All right, let's listen to the first part of Alex's talk. At 7.30 a.m. on March 31, 1970, a handful of Japanese student radicals armed with short swords and bombs hijacked Japan Airlines Flight 351 and attempted to fly the plane and its 129 hostages to North Korea. Landing in South Korea, the students engaged in an intense standoff with police before trading the hostages for Japanese transport minister Shinjiro Yamamura and continuing on to Pyongyang. They had chosen this destination over Cuba, a major base for the international radical imagination in the 1960s, as it was deemed too far for their purposes. They stayed there for almost 20 years. In May of 1970, just over a month after the so-called Yodogo hijacking incident, West German journalist Ulrike Meinhof helped mastermind the prison break of Andreas Bader from a West Berlin jail, killing a 63-year-old man in the process. Bader and his girlfriend, Gudrun Enslin, had been convicted of a 1969 arson of a Frankfurt department store that they burned in protest of the Vietnam War. Meinhof herself had, just two years earlier, advocated for moving from, quote, protest to resistance in combating imperialism and the state. After springing Bader, Meinhof and a handful of other radicals went underground, resurfacing a few months later as an armed band of revolutionaries. These actions represented the opening volleys by two movements that would help define international left-wing violence in the 1970s. The Yodogo hijackers were part of a militant wing of the Zengakuren student movement that had fractured off in 1969 called Sekigun, or Red Army. The 1970 hijacking was certainly not the first act by Sekigun, but it was the most sensational and the first international action by a faction of the group. For their part, Bader and Meinhof rebranded themselves as the Rote Armee Fraktion and released a manifesto after going underground titled To Build Up the Red Army. 
In other words, in the spring of 1970, two groups emerged on the national and international stage, both named Red Army and both ready to use violent, uh, even terroristic methods to achieve their goals. But the question remains, why would students and young people in wealthy first world nations take up the gun against their own governments and global imperialism? And, perhaps most perplexingly, why would such similar movements appear almost simultaneously in nations as seemingly different as West Germany and Japan? These are well-known events in the histories of Japan and West Germany, yet, taken individually, they appear as aberrations. However, the emergence of the Red Army factions in Japan and West Germany is not an, just an example of parallel developments. Rather, the people behind these groups have been talking amongst themselves and with each other, using the same language of international protest arising from anti-imperial movements against the U.S. war in Vietnam. So it seems like there's a couple things from these activists' perspective that makes what they're doing, I guess, not insane and quite rational. Um, and it seems to be yeah. that they're reacting to the violence of the state. So I would assume then that they would probably say something to the effect of, if the state wasn't being violent, our violence would be unnecessary. Yes, I think that that's a, that's a major, major part of it to understand. And indeed, uh, part of the thing that I think is important to understand uh, further about that is that uh, you use the, the, the term rational. And I think that in, in response to what they think is a logical strategy of global imperialism, uh, which is attempting on a much larger scale than just the riot police or uh, just the, the right wing press, uh, which is attempting to ultimately tamp down liberation struggles in the third world and ultimately commit genocide in uh, right. Indochina. Uh, so there's there's an idea that there's a logic behind what the United States is doing in, in Indochina and that they can also rationally respond with uh, their own form of violence. I think I quote Sekigun at that point in 1969 releases what they call a declaration of world war. And one of the pieces of that declaration of world war is the phrase it's addressed to the bourgeoisie of Japan. And they say, you know, basically almost verbatim, if you have the right to kill our Vietnamese comrades without discrimination, then we have the right to kill you. Uh, so it's a very, it's a very, it's a very logical step in terms of how this violence operates. Now, at the same time, what I would also like to point out is it's not just a brutalization between violence and counterviolence of the state and non-state actors. Another really crucial part of this is that these groups are seeing in the world at large a, a sort of macrocosm of what they think can yeah. happen in their own countries. You know, if the if the Cubans, if the Vietnamese, if if Mao um, in China can create their own world, if they can throw off capitalism, if they can throw off imperialism, then then so too can these groups in, in the heart of the metropole, in the heart of capitalism, in the heart of imperialism, so too can they do it. It's the moment is now, the time has come to sort of take action. And the sort of vanguard idea, this sort of performative vanguard action of violence is not just meant to destroy the state. It's also meant to be uh, edifying. It's supposed to show the working class that we're the vanguard we know that the time is now. The U.S. is losing in Vietnam by the late '60s. Uh, you know, we can. Imperialism is weak enough that it, all it will take is this is this shock to its system, and then finally the proletariat will understand that it's time for global revolution. Finally, imperialism will be weak enough and be attacked at all points, not only on the periphery in Vietnam, but also in the metropole in Tokyo. 
So it's it's sort of a blending of these views, and it becomes brutalized in a lot of different ways because of how the war in Vietnam goes, uh, multiple other wars, especially the uh, uh, 1967 war uh, in the Middle East. These all sort of feed into themselves into sort of a larger milieu of uh, the possibility of violence and the necessity of violence. Okay, now we'll hear more from Alex's talk, talking about how the Japanese and West German uh, radicals had a mutual influence on each other. My research puts these two groups side by side in the early 1970s, and I argue that not only were both Red Armies responding to U.S. imperialism, in Vietnam especially, but also more globally, uh, in a similar way. The Red Army in West Germany took some of its inspiration from Japanese students, a fight West Germans saw as a fellow First World struggle attempting to bring the fight on the periphery back to the metropole. Moreover, the Japanese Sekigun movement was likely more interconnected to the West German case, even providing inspiration for Rota Amei than has previously been explored. What both Red Armies wanted was to achieve a final, violent blow to the structure of global imperialism that exploited both the First and the Third Worlds and was engaged in genocide in Vietnam. By taking up the gun at that precise moment, they could help globalize the shared struggle against imperialism by organizing into vanguard groups in the very heart of imperialism itself. It's only been about 20 years since scholars began to speak of a global 1960s, and we still rarely think of Japan as part of it. More specifically, the emergence of self-styled urban guerrillas is often seen in decidedly national terms. That is to say, the reasons why some groups used violence is explained only within the confines of Japanese or West German history. In both cases, these violent groups tend to be understood in terms of the fascist past or an incomplete post-war democratization. Most notoriously, Rota Amei became, in the media, Hitler's children, an allusion to their stark rejection of perceived parallels between the Third Reich and the post-war Federal Republic. The moniker also tends to evoke a sense of German anti-democratic tendencies and a predilection towards political violence. Similarly, some of those who have written about Sekigun in English have sensationalized the supposed Bushido spirit of the group, which was certainly not helped by the use of swords at the Yodogo hijacking. Certainly, the three most violent urban guerrilla movements in the 1960s and 1970s were in the former Axis nations of Germany, Japan, and Italy. However, that understanding ignores the influence that the German-Japanese connection had in the development of the Red Army concept. To my knowledge, there are a lot, like we have Korean War in the 50s, there's all the nuclear mm -hmm. testing, there's a lot of uncertainty, at least in Japan, I don't know about Germany. Yeah. Uh, that, like, there's a lot of various, a lot of this, there's a lot of similarities between the 50s and the 60s in terms of clearly the global Amer American empire and Japan's complacency or support for it is causing a whole bunch of problems already. So my question is, why didn't, why do you think the, these kind of movements didn't, of the violent sort didn't really happen until the 60s? Yes. And, and thank you, of course, for, for including women, which we can certainly talk about. But well, I, I think, I think for a number of reasons, uh, it, it's important to point out that there, often we don't emphasize that there was a lot of protest against Korea. Um, Korea is seen as a sort of uh, uh, war without a home. Uh, it's a very odd war. And as we have yep. been reminded recently, it's still going on, um, very technically. But it is it is also a war that I think is very messy. And for one reason, one reason might be that it is actually an international coalition. It's a United Nations that goes into Korea to try to fight it. Um, and when it's in Vietnam, it's it's really just 
the United States with the backing of around uh, a couple hundred thousand South Koreans and Australians. Those are the only people who are there. Um, at the same time, Korea is previous to all of the decolonization uh, efforts that happen starting yeah. in the early 1960s. So whereas you might have the North Koreans be an important example of socialist revolution, or at least socialism working until the mid-1970s, uh, working for a country, uh, especially in contrast to a, a undemocratic South, uh, which is also a parallel to the Vietnam conflict, um, you, you really don't have the same context of these are people struggling for their own rights against a, uh, a large conspiracy against their rights, uh, which after Cuba, which after uh, 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 Algeria, uh, these are two of the main examples. It really takes on a much different uh, tone to, to, to certainly the crimes being committed in Indochina and then also the possibility coming out of Indochina. So earlier, Alex, you mentioned about women being a part of this, uh, this radical uh, leftist Red Army story. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how they were. I, it tends to read a lot more like a male activity in action. So, yeah. so bring in the ladies for us. Yeah. Uh, no, absolutely. I mean, it, it, and I think it, part of the reason why uh, there are uh, such high representation of women in red armies, I think is a, a direct reaction to the masculinization of uh, protest in the streets. Uh, there's a very famous sort of uniform you would wear as a Zengakuren, uh, which is the Japanese student movement, what you would wear as a uniform. Uh, you would wear that at a construction helmet, you'd have a, a masked face and you would carry a, a, sta a staff basically. And it was very masculine. Many of the women in that movement were expected to make uh, rice balls behind the barricades and tend to wounds. So the, the protest actions of the 1960s uh, are, are very gendered in that way. But you do see not only female participation in Red Army factions, but actually in, in the leadership. Um, and I think that's one of the most impressive, or excuse me, most important parts of this story that is uh, that, that sort of sets it apart from the student movement as well. Uh, and indeed, uh, of the three major factions of the Japanese Red Army, uh, they're all run by women. Um, and really? <laughs> yes. Uh, part of it is that when the, the Japanese Red Army first starts as the Sekigunha, as the, the Red Army faction, uh, the purported leader of that, um, whose name is Shiomi Takaya, uh, he goes to prison. And his wife, um, Kazuko, takes over basically for, the, uh, for the, the faction while he's in prison. He basically is imprisoned until 1989, and he goes to prison in 1969. So he's out of the picture almost entirely. Um, now... The other group that that's that's very important for this is is the Japanese Red Army that goes to train with the PFLP, run by a woman named Shigenobu Fusako, um, who, you know, is is sort of you know for lack of a better term, she's 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 very attractive. Um, she <laughs> sort of wears the uniform of the revolutionary quite well, and there's some very very clearly staged photos of her with AK-47s in the Middle East that are meant as you know, romantic propaganda for the Japanese Red Army. Yeah, pinup girl. Um, <laughs> not, not certainly. I think that that you know that that was part of the idea. I mean, and, and you have to consider also that the uh, as as forward thinking of many of these uh, uh, radicals were in both Germany and Japan, uh, they had pretty retrograde views about women and about sort of a who was owed sex. Uh, so you know, 
you know, as much as they they were pushing for liberation struggles, they also uh, thought that uh, women had a certain position and that they shouldn't speak up. <laughs> um, so it makes these these women even more sort of uh, uh, you know out of place almost. Um, what I would like to to point out too is that you know we clearly have, and I think we still have, a very gendered idea of violence about. Women, women are, are seen naturally as, as more nur- nurturing. Um, you know, the, the ability to have children is supposed to mean that they that women should not be as prone to violence. But as I mentioned before, uh, Xiaomi and uh, Shigenobu and uh, Ulrika Meinhof, one of the leaders of the German Red Army faction, they're all mothers. So you know, it, it, it puts a lot of pressure on traditional gender roles at the time as well. Uh, so it's seen as even more sinister that these are women committing violence. And it's even more sinister that they're mothers who should be nurturing that they're committing violence. And indeed, a lot of the sort of first round of reporting on, on especially Shigenobu and Ulrika Meinhof, um, they emphasize things like Shigenobu was supposedly a go-go dancer and she was, she was very promiscuous. And that was why she was violent. Um, there's her father, uh, puts out an article in one of the right-wing journals in Japan apologizing for his daughter to the Japanese people. I mean, it's, it's a very, it's a very, it's very, very, very gendered. And Meinhof, uh, for, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a little, it's, it's, no, no, it's, it's hard. It's, I think it's very hard to, to, to see, you know, to look, look back on this and Meinhof, uh, for, you know, unrelated purposes, uh, had a metal plate installed in her head. And so a lot of the West German context about uh, why she had turned to violence as a mother, as a nurturing person, was that, you know, she's insane, that there's something there's something mentally wrong with her, that that she would she would turn away from her traditional gender roles. Um, uh, One last example of this sort of interesting gender uh, playing out uh, concept of gender playing out. Um, One of the most infamous moments of the Japanese Red Army, uh, or excuse me, I should say, one of the factions of Sekigun called United Red Army uh, is this 1972 purge that occurs in the mountains near Nagano. Uh, about 14 members of the, the the United Red Army are killed in what's called a criticism self criticism session. It's a it's a Maoist concept of making sure that you have ideological purity, and it's between these two leaders of the United Red Army, one of whom uh, by the name of Nagata Hiroko and Hiroko uh, Nagata is treated after the purge as 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 basically this un, unconscionable monster. Uh, I believe that the judge during the trial calls her a witch and compared to her male counterpart who's brought into trial, he's wearing a suit, he, he, he's allowed to brush his hair. Uh, she is let in on a a rope like a leash into the uh, the courtroom. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is something about the fact that this is a sort of a way for women uh, who are also radicals to to be just as violent as as their male counterparts. I mean, there's there's no no one no no gender owns mm-hmm. violence, but for some, but because they're women, it makes and because they're mothers, some of them, it makes it even more indescribable. It makes it even weirder that this is happening, um, even though it might be more representative of the population of these radicals. So you mentioned Cuba. I'm just wondering why Cuba ends up being sort of something that a lot of the this left-wing transnational violence ends up looking at and being inspired by. Yeah, and and I would like to preface it very quickly and and say that it, it's 
likely inappropriate to and I wouldn't I would try not to blame the third world for violence in the first. I think that that's a sort of initially that's how historians or excuse me, not historians, but uh, observers, uh, journalists, people writing true crime really, really saw many of these groups, including the Red Army factions. It was like, well, the violent uh, uh, South Americans were violent. And so they just exported their violence to the first world. Um at the same time, you you can't ignore the fact that um, you know the leaders of the Japanese Red Army and 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 certainly the German Red Army uh, quoted uh, the very famous address to the Tricontinental by Che Guevara, asking for or demanding, I should say, uh, that the world create two, three, many Vietnams around the world. That Vietnam was this example of they're beating the imperialists. We want you to go out and we want you to beat the imperialists too. So, you know, that that's that's a very important call to say, hey, look, you know, I'm giving you this example of a way to fight imperialism that you are not being able to do in your own, you know, in your own home country. Uh, if, if you don't have the political parties or you don't have the political will among your, your working class to, uh, to lead a, a proletarian revolution, just look to look to us. We, we, we can do it. Uh, at the same time, there's a huge amount of romanticization of these movements. Uh, if you, uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding of what is actually happening uh, in in these civil wars. Uh, certainly, uh, viewing Vietnam as a sort of more contained conflict rather than a uh, a global struggle against imperialism is perhaps more to what we would understand that conflict to be right now. But it, it didn't look like that to the radicals who decided to pick up a gun. Um, and it's it's not just Cuba, but uh, another maybe smaller point would be that there's really an aesthetic choice that they're making. Uh, they really they really pick up on uh, Che Guevara and and the Black Panther Party for self defense and and to a lesser extent the the Palestinian Liberation Front um, to say uh, you know th- these are these are I hate to say, but but sort of sexy examples of 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 ways that we can model ourselves as gorillas. I mean, the the term gorilla, which to describe themselves is is an, is an obvious borrowing from the Latin American context. Um, but it is it is certainly sort of an inspiration. Uh, you know, when I mentioned earlier this idea that uh, there is violence going on in the third world. Um, you know that that's if that's where violence is going on, and you you see utility in violence, then you're going to also look at those groups and say, you know that 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 is a model that we can we can adapt, or we should even go fight with those people, uh, which some of these red army factions certainly did. So then there isn't a, I guess just as a quick aside, there isn't some some sort of like nationalist imperative behind this activism. It's explicitly transnational from the get go for a lot of these people. Uh, yes, certainly. Um, and in fact, uh, depending on who you ask, uh, the Japanese Red Army, when they go to fight with the PFLP uh, uh, against uh, Israel, uh, they eventually leave the training camps uh, in, in Jordan and Lebanon uh, over a disagreement about how nationalistic uh, everyone is being. Uh, and it's uh, sort of unclear what that conflict actually, how that conflict emerged, but it, it certainly seems to be have been about uh, nationalism. So it's important to note that the new left in both of these countries and more broadly globally are looking to internationalize their activism. Uh, that's a, a very key part of what they're trying to do. Uh, so they they hold international conferences, they they make international contacts, they 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 
you know, participate in international war crimes tribunals against the United States. It, it's definitely a way in which they think that the internationalization of the struggle against Vietnam and imperialism more generally is is the way to break out of the sort of stalemate that they've they've experienced. Now, at the same time, uh, the internationalization of the struggle is is really precisely what the Red Army concept is born out of. Uh, Sekigun, when it's part of the student movement, when it declares itself uh, a, a Red Army, what it's trying to do, it says, is trying to create the conditions to have a global civil war. And the global civil war would be led by an international vanguard army. So the idea that they're trying to do is, you know, they're, they're very explicitly at the beginning saying that we're, we are Yes, we're the vanguard, but we want other people to join our Red Army and to be part of this global struggle, uh, which is important, I think, to note because we don't often see, especially Japanese Red Army, um, as as an international uh, uh, organization. It's sort of seen as an aberration that they go abroad to try to spread revolution, or it's seen as the idea that they've been kicked out of Japan and they can't get revolution to happen there, so they're going to try it somewhere else. I would argue that they're ultimately that, that originally they're internationally focused and the, their goals originally are to uh, get the revolution happening globally uh, but that they uh, they can't get it happening in Japan that doesn't necessarily mean that they uh, aren't going to try um, or that a revolution more globally will not affect Japan now we'll hear more from Alex's talk uh, about the main narrative of these two violent groups in Germany and Japan here we can see that the exchange of ideas and aesthetics between the West German and Japanese groups also played a role. A member of the West German student movement, SDS, attended an anti-war conference in late 1969 in Japan, where he met with Sekigun members and brought back English-language translations of their documents. Similarly, the far-left West German paper Ajit Akdrak Drei published the Sekigun Manifesto explaining the Yodogo hijacking in April of 1970, this was the very same magazine that published the founding manifesto of Rota Armee just two months later. The Red Armies did not take up the gun in a vacuum, and indeed the decision to continue the struggle against imperialism by more violent means came out of a legacy of increasingly brutal interactions between protesters and the state. This is also a global story throughout the 1960s, but here too Japan and West Germany had parallel histories. On June 2, 1967, a West German by the name of Benno Onesorg was gunned down by a West Berlin police officer while attending his first ever public protest against a visit by the Shah of Iran. Onozork's death was a stark turning point for many in the West German left and helped to inaugurate a furious debate over the use of violence. One urban guerrilla group even took the name the Zweiten Juni Bewegung after the date of Onozork's shooting. In October of that same year, a coalition of three Zengakuren factions held massive protests at Tokyo's Haneda Airport against Prime Minister Sato Aizaku's visit to South Vietnam. In massive battles with riot police, on the 8th of October, Yamazaki Hiroaki, a student demonstrator, died, either killed by police or crushed trying to hijack an armored vehicle, depending on the story. Yamazaki was not the first demonstrator to have been killed in Japan's long 1960s, but his death was a catalyst for the use of force in student protests. Indeed, after Haneda, the Zengakuren street fighter, clad in a construction helmet and carrying a gebo, or political force stick, became an internationally recognized symbol of resistance to the state, one that Japanese students actively spread and West Germans were eager to praise and emulate. 
Zenkakura and street fighting tactics fit well into the theory of counterviolence, that is, the idea that force needed to be met with force, as protests over issues like the war in Vietnam hardened over the 1960s. In the key year of 1968, the charismatic firebrand leader of SDS was shot in an assassination attempt. In 1969 alone, police arrested over 10,000 Japanese student protesters. The road to revolutionary violence wound through years of increasing use of force by both radicals and the state. There were precedents for the Red Armies in Japan and West Germany, but what did they actually believe and what did they hope to accomplish? This question is a thorny historical and political issue, but studying the radical fringes of what were called the New Left movements helps us to inform about the imaginations and ideas of the center of these movements as well. Sekigun came out of an international anti-Vietnam war conference organized by the Bunto faction of Zengakuren on August 3rd, 1968 in Tokyo. In Bunto's view, the world was at a historic transition stage between communism and capitalism, a development inaugurated by the 1917 Russian Revolution. Opposing the revolutionary groups around the world, however, was a system of imperialist powers. In Japan, Anpo, the abbreviation for the Japan-U.S. Security Treaty, ratified in 1960 and renewed in 1970, and NATO in Europe were both military wings of an international counter-revolutionary system that had to be smashed before the world could transition to communism. All of this was in service of Bunto's new radical stance on the possibility of a simultaneous global revolution, and they viewed the conference as crucial for organizing a cohort of vanguard groups for their ultimate plans, building a global political party with a vanguard Red Army to fight in a global revolutionary war. This was Sekigun's ultimate goal. In 1969, the group released a declaration of world war. In it, they wrote, quote, If you have the right to kill our Vietnamese comrades, we have the right to kill you. Wota Ame similarly came out of a longer debate about the nature of imperialism. SDS organized their own anti-Vietnam War Congress in West Berlin in February 1968, which portrayed the conflict between North Vietnam and the United States as a larger confrontation between the global international workers' movement and a constellation of imperialist capitalist powers. SDS specifically implicated West Germany and other European nations through NATO and industrial cooperation with firms like Dow Chemical, the manufacturers of napalm. What was worse was that the Vietnamese Revolution had stalled the American imperialist machinery and had to be made an example of to discourage others from rising up. Wota Ame took this to the extremes. They specifically targeted U.S. military installations as representatives of the global imperial army in Europe, intending their acts of violence as both symbolic and concrete attacks on global imperialism in Vietnam as a vanguard in West Germany. Struggling at home would help those struggling more globally. Parallel to the Yodogo hijacking and the birth of Rota Ame in 1970 was an explosion of violence in 1972, which exhausted the Red Army's material and ideologically until later in the decade. Although this is often cited as the, quote, death of the New Left in both nations, the story was a bit more complicated. In May 1972, Rota Ame launched a string of attacks, including bombing U.S. Army headquarters in Heidelberg and a supposed CIA listening post in Frankfurt. These were, in Rota Ame's own words, attacks on the imperialist military currently committing genocide in Vietnam. A faction of Sekigun, more commonly known as Nihon Sekigun, or Japanese Red Army, took their anti-imperial struggle to the Middle East, training with the PFLP and struggling for Arab liberation against Israeli imperialism. It was also a journey that members of Rota Ame would make at almost exactly the same time. On May 30th, 1972, three Nihon Sekigun members flew from Rome to Tel Aviv 
drawing guns and grenades from their luggage and killing 26 at Lode Airport. Those weapons were reportedly stolen off of a West German U.S. military installation. It cannot be overlooked that there were major differences here, too. Perhaps one of the most famous Sekigun actions was a particularly brutal incident during the winter of 1972 when members of the Rengo Sekigun, or United Red Army, held a training in the mountains of Nagano Prefecture, which devolved into a criticism-self-criticism session that left 14 members dead. Following this purge, the surviving members faced down police in a tense hostage situation at a ski resort at Mount Asama in one of the most watched television broadcasts in Japanese history. Gota Ame had no such factional violence, and the Asama Sanso incident, as it became known, was so shocking that even Nihon Sekigun denounced it from Lebanon, even as they trained for the Lod attack. The shock of Rota Ame's 1972 attacks, the Lod airport, and the Asama Sanso incident were all condemned by the left in Japan and West Germany, and they helped to damper some of the revolutionary spirit coming out of 1968. Yet, it is perhaps too tempting to see this as the death of the new left. There is danger in seeing too direct of a line between protest and terroristic violence. And it should be noted that Rota Ame wouldn't put down the gun until 1998. Sekigun lasted until the 2000s. In your talk, you mentioned that they don't succeed, right? Certainly, yes. They're, they're definitely uh, failed to achieve the thing that they are looking for. And so my question is kind of, why do you find it worth studying failure in this sense? Yeah, no, uh, they they not only failed to end the war in Vietnam, but uh, exactly. currently live in a <laughs> yeah. capitalistic society. Uh, they they did not bring it, basically didn't bring anything down. Um, no, I, I, what I'd like to point out for this, you know, is that um, these are certainly the fringe. These this is as as fringe as you can really get in terms of the new left movements of the nineteen sixties and seventies. They're relatively small, if not very small groups compared to the sort of mass actions against Vietnam, the mass actions against uh, uh, imperialism more more, more broadly. What I think would be important to sort of understand about why these groups are interesting uh, beyond beyond their their obvious sort of interest in terms of violence, um, there's something to be said for why we are sort of drawn to the idea of, of more violent groups than we would be to more peaceful groups. But I would quote uh, a very, very good historian on uh, who does comparative work with the German Red Army faction and the Weathermen, the urban guerrilla movement of white American students uh, in 1969 through the late 70s, uh, in which he points out that it, if you look at the ideology and the rhetoric of Red Army, and I, I would I would certainly put the Japanese Red Army uh, into this equation, although he does not. It is to say that it by looking at the fringe ideas, you can get a good sense of what the center actually believes as well. I mean, they are taking some of these ideas to the extremes. Many of the groups that are so-called citizens groups in Japan, there's a a, a group called Beiheiren, which was a citizens movement that was specifically set up only to protest the war in Vietnam. Um, they very explicitly do not use the word revolution. They specifically do not use the word uh, imperialism so that they don't get sort of lumped in with, with Marxists or Maoists. Um, but they have multiple factions and many of their factions uh, either 
every so often drop some revolution or imperialism into their work. Uh, but some of them, some of them just say, you know, some of them are very explicitly anti-imperial. Now, none of them, none of Beheden would be accused if you asked anyone in, in Japan now, or if you asked any scholars on the group, none of them would say that those groups were violent or that they were advocating violence or that they were even probably ever going to employ violence. However, for example, uh, they had a very uh, a similar idea that uh, Vietnam was a genocide um, and that uh, the, it was going to probably bring down the sort of nexus between Japanese and American capitalism and warmongering. Uh, these were these were very similar views. So one of the things you can do by looking at the extreme, extreme Red Army factions is to say, well, some of these groups had similar views to the center or the sort of more bourgeois movements. At the same time, they are taking them to what I would argue what they think are logical extremes. So it's not just that they have these ideas and that they say, well, no, but we're going to do something about it. It's that, well, you think that, you know, if, if Vietnam is a genocide and if you think that it's going to end some aspect of American capitalism or it's going to break the U.S.-Japan security treaty, which Beheden uh, uh, and the student movement and the armed left all hate, then, you know, why not, uh, these groups would argue, use more direct action? If we're going to get uh, beaten up by the cops while we do it, then why not firebomb a uh, a police box? So more broadly, I think what it shows is that it isn't that there's some sort of ideology that creates this violence. It's a confluence of things that helps to radicalize ideology uh, in a way that propels some people. And I, again, I should I should clarify a very small number of people to take what they think are logical steps towards uh, violence. Now, I, I would also point out to, to answer your question a little bit, uh, groups such as the the West German and Japanese student movements and even Beheden also do not succeed. Um, and although they are seen as sort of more uh, uh, productive uh, in terms of politics and in terms of the culture in both Japan and West Germany, uh, they, they similarly do not end the war in Vietnam. So to ask why study failure is to sort of miss the point, but that rather all multiple possible multiple possibilities exist in every political situation. Yeah, I think so too. And I also, for for my own purposes, I think that often when I talk about the Red Armies in general, people uh, tend to tend to misunderstand what's happening with these groups. Uh, and by that, I mean that they tend to see them as we, we talked about previously as sort of nihilistic or, or actually insane. Um, and that it's, it's, you know, if you, if you just sort of see it as a, as a, as a narrative of failure, that's much easier to sort of dismiss the idea that there is there, that political violence emerges and that there is, that there are consequences to uh, consequences to, to political rhetoric, but there are also consequences to the way that the state deals with its uh, civil society. So, you know, just by saying, well, you know, they, these groups did not create the, the global, the, the global civil war that they wanted or that they did not overthrow the Japanese or West German government is to sort of miss the point that, but the fact that they tried, we should likely unpack why they thought that was going to happen. Otherwise, you can miss the idea about how this sort of political radicalization can happen, perhaps. Alex, thank you so much for sitting down with us. Your, all of your comments were interesting, and I think our, read, our readers, our listeners, will, will enjoy them a lot. No problem. As per usual, if you would like to see, uh, if you would like to read up on some of the things that Alex has talked about today, he has graciously provided um, several suggested readings, as it were, um, which you can find uh, on our website at transasiapod.wordpress.com. 
Or you can also find us at, on Twitter at TransAsiaPod, where we'll also have links to uh, those readings that have links and also a link back to the website. So join us next time to learn more about TransAsia in the world. Our podcast is sponsored by the UW-Madison's Department of History, and our podcast artwork is designed and created by Catherine Randall. Thanks, thanks so much, everyone. Bye. Thank you. Just tacked on the rest of Alex's recording that he sent us of the parts that I cut out.